Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I like my podcasts like I like my ghosts. Weird and a bit angry. <laughs> Thankfully, this week delivers on both fronts. Our guest is Johnny Compton, whose debut novel, The Spite House, offers spectres of all kinds, but none of them are pleasant. His book introduced me, and will probably introduce some of you, to the very real phenomenon of spite houses. I thought it was just a cool name for a creepy building, but no. Johnny runs us through their history, what they are, and why he wanted to write a story about one. We also talk about the broader tradition of American haunted houses, ghost lore, complex patriarchs, and the paradox of progressive politics, which is a sentence that really challenges my pop guard. (laughs) Oh, and I have possibly my most smugly self-satisfied moment yet on Talking Scared. You'll know it when you hear it. This is a longer episode, so I'm going to keep the intro short. Remember, there is the Patreon channel if you want more Talking Scared content. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and get loads of cool exclusive episodes. But for now, come with me to a small town in the Texas Hill Country. There's a house there that's built firmly with stone, cement and sour intent. Let's talk scared. Welcome to Talking Scared, Johnny. How are you today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm good, man. Yeah, I'm good. I um, I believe you're on the road. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from? I am currently in North Carolina. Okay, right. Here so in the I, States. I'm, but you're from Texas, right? Yeah, from San Antonio. So ha, ha, From San Antonio? Oh, cool. That's one of the few places in Texas I've been. I, um, I have very... Very fleeting. It was twenty years ago. Very fleeting memories of it. I I, I remember. Is there like a, a river walk, like a a, a boat? Yeah, we have the river walk. That's kind of the signature feature, a little bit of downtown. Yeah, I remember that being beautiful. Yeah, I also remember thinking. Speaking of you being on the road, that I'd never been anywhere as big as Texas. <laughs> <laughs> it's enormous. Yeah. It's an enormous, ridiculous state. Even as a Texan, it's really weird, especially when you're trying to drive through it and you find yourself kind of wondering, am I ever going to get where I'm going? Or am I kind of trapped in a twilight zone scenario where somehow I'm repeating the same paths on the road over and over again without understanding how I got caught in this loop? It's enormous. I'm glad you said that because one day I was doing a road trip with my friends and one day we drove for like a literal thousand miles and and, and no one we told about that seemed to think it was the slightest bit unusual. And I was like, what is this place? <laughs> Yeah, it's that actually shows up uh, a comment, a quick comment about that in my novel, because it is it is a legitimate, strange aspect to the state. And as I've been able to travel recently, it still kind of blows my mind when you see road signs that actually show that you can actually in other parts of the country, you can actually get to other states in the same amount of time it would take me to just drive to, you know, one of our nearest metropolitans. Yeah. Um, and you can cross two or three states, some of these places in the Northeast, which is kind of amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I could probably drive to like, I don't know, Belgium or something. I don't really know <laughs> the difference. But yeah, it's a different, whole different scale. Um, but yeah, like, like you say, sort of Texan road trips and, and particularly kind of out of the way towns, they, they do play a big role in your new novel. Um, and let, let's get to that. It's called The Spite House. And 
I've written down that it's a quirky ghost story about an even quirkier building, but I think quirky makes it sound far too benign. Um, quirky is a cheerful word, and this is very a very uncheerful place. Um, so, yeah, I need to think of a different way to put it, but it's off kilter at least. Yeah. To start us off, can you introduce the listeners to what they need to know about your story, The Spite House? Sure, absolutely. I love the quirky. I like I like the idea of that. I know what you're you're saying there. It's the, the house in the the situation is more sinister than maybe that word conveys, but at the same time, I think it, it's still somewhat apropos. Um, but the Spite House is a story about a family on the run, a desperate father in tow with his two daughters. We don't know why they're on the run. We're going to find that out as the story progresses. As they are on the road trying to run from whatever they're running from, they come to Texas. The father sees an ad in a newspaper for someone wanting some the the owner of a, a spite house, the titular spite house, is looking for anyone who will stay in the house to prove that it is indeed haunted as it is reputed to be. And he is going to stay inside this spite house and try to figure out what ghosts may be there, why they're there. And as we progress through the story, we find out why the owner of the house, who is a very wealthy woman, why she is terrified of actually setting foot in the house herself and is instead employing someone else to do that work for her. And that's the the, the gist, the setup of the plot. But as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, quirks and off-kilter beats to it in no small part because of the house being a spite house, which is in, in itself inherently kind of a, a quirky real-world phenomenon. Well, let's start there because I'd never heard the term spite house before reading your book. I I assumed it was this really cool name it invented for a particular haunted house. I mean, we can get into ghosts and creepy things in in a while, but let let's talk about this first of all because when did you well, first start, what is a spite house and when did you first come across the phenomenon? Um a, a spite house is as the name implies, a place built primarily to spite someone as opposed to be <laughs> properly lived in, right? Like there's um, the the kind of conventional stories on it is maybe there's some kind of family dispute. Uh, there's a lot of examples of them, but the one I've repeatedly seen the most examples of, there's some kind of family dispute or there's some kind of property dispute between neighbors or something. Somebody builds their dream house that has a wonderful view and just is, is everything they wanted it to be. And whoever is trying to spite them builds another house in whatever space is allotted to them. Usually there's only a little bit of space available because of the property dispute, something along those lines. The person who built their dream house is thinking, well, there's, there's nothing that whoever it is that hates me can do about it now because I've taken up most of the land. And then person B, who is full of spite, builds their house regardless of how limited the space is available to them. And some of these houses are extraordinarily skinny or they're built crooked. They've got all kinds of strange arrangements. They'll build their house right next to uh, the other house, just to block the view, just to aggravate the neighbor, just to express their disdain. And so it's technically legal in a lot of circumstances when these uh, houses are built. It's the reason why they're building a house as opposed to some other structures, because if you literally just built a wall there, it would be obvious that this is just built out of out of pure spite and knocking it down would be a you know something that they probably could. Um, it would be easier for them to take that 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 approach, whoever it is that you're spiting. But if you build a house, no matter how odd it is, then they can't go to that that extreme because you can technically say, well, this is still my residence, even though it's not someplace that really even from the outside looking at it um, 
could possibly be comfortable or reasonable to live in. But that is what a spite house is. And I would encourage people to go look it up because it's, I think, a fascinating subject. And just the idea of people being that angry, petty, devoting that much of their time and their their energy to uh, building a house, an entire house, just to spite someone is uh, kind of mind-blowing to me still. Well, I went on a bit of a deep dive this morning into Wikipedia about it, because I, like I said, I didn't know about the term, and there are a lot of these things. I mean, there are some that go back to like ancient Greece, but I, yeah, I had no idea. And there are, there's something, I don't know how to put this, it, it almost feels novelistic. It feels like something that a Dickens character would do, you know, or or it feels like a kind of Hatfield McCoy's thing from the, 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 the depths of American kind of blood feuds and stuff. It just feels quite gothic in and of itself. The idea of building a house that where spite and negative emotion is almost as important as the bricks and mortar. There's something beautifully ripe for horror about that idea. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me. It kind of, um, not kind of, it, it completely surprised me that when I I'd read the, I read an article about it um, some years ago, probably around 2018, 2017 maybe or so, and then I, like you, I ended up on Wikipedia immediately afterward because I was, I had never heard of spite houses until then either was fascinated by how many of these, like you said, there's, there's so many of them that exist and so many examples of them around the world. There was an example of one that was actually making the rounds on social media. I think a few months ago that I think came from Beirut, if I'm not mistaken, or um, somewhere in that, that region. Um, and there's just so many of them. And like you said, there is something kind of inherently Gothic about it and, kind of just perfect, perfectly suited for some form of storytelling. And I was stunned that nobody had written, to my knowledge or research, a haunted house story about one before I got to it. So when I when I saw that, um, I, I kind of, I don't want to say I was in a rush because it actually took me still a few years to finish the book, but I did feel a sense of urgency in wanting to come up with an idea because I, I suspected that there was no way that this was going to stay um, unknown as relatively or I think largely unknown as it, as it has been before somebody eventually gets to that idea. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so hard to find an idea that you feel like um, nobody's really explored or exploited yet. So with that in mind, I was eager to, to get started on a, a haunted house story with it, but at the same time, you have to take your time and come up with the right characters, the right scenarios, the right situations, et cetera, to, to make it worthwhile. You can't just throw the house together and, and throw a haunting in there and then just hope for the best, you know? Well, I tried to look into like, the literary history of these, assuming there'd be lots of examples, like you say. And the only one I came across was, I believe, that Poe wrote about them, but in in a comedic way. In a, there's a short story called The Businessman, where his protagonist kind of builds these spite houses to devalue the area, and then, they, then he kind of blackmails people into charging a fortune to knock down his own spite house. Um, but yeah, that's like Poe in a weird comedic vein, which... That's quite strange that you think, okay, Poe's tackled it. There must be a ghost story version. But oh no, he, he, I think you may be the first. So, so yeah, kudos to that. Um, <laughs> but you said then about like the idea and you felt in a bit of a rush, a bit of urgency. What did come first? Was it the idea of writing about a spy house or were you already looking to write a haunted house story? And then you thought, oh, that synthesizes well. <laughs> I did always want to write a haunted house story. I've been writing horror fiction. Um, that's, that's primarily what I've been writing or trying to write for the in- entirety, basically, of my my um, career, as it, as it were, or, or aspiring career is probably more uh, appropriately put. 
but I, I have always loved haunted house stories. So I wanted to write a haunted house story. I had um, the villain character already in place and in mind and some of her backstory, why she's going to do what she's doing. So I already had that kind of format in place. And then the spite house location I, I, that came to me in, through that article. And it just was serendipity. I mean, it just neatly slots right into what I already had in mind in my little spreadsheet of, of story ideas that I keep together. And I just was like, Oh, I could just attach this here. And then you have that, you put that together and then you start thinking, does this, you know, I want to make sure that this actually fits and I'm not just kind of slapping it, slapping it in there and it doesn't um, actually work. And, and I'm just doing this too gimmicky. And really with the backstory I'd already created and some of the things I had in mind, I thought, Oh, this is going to work not just as a, a cool feature in terms of the, physical structure and oddity and backstory of the house, but also thematically with the idea of spite and nurturing a level of hatred and, and anger about something that it, it can last through generations and generations. Like you said, some of those spite houses are ancient, the examples of them. Um, and most of them are malevolent. I, I do want to make sure that I, I always like to make sure I point out because there is a, a pretty famous spite house, I think here in the States and I can't remember exactly where it is, but I believe it's called the rainbow house. And it's a, Hmm. Um, house LGBTQ house that is um, painted as such specifically to spite some some bigoted um, neighbors across the street. So th- there, there's sometimes a, some positive energy that can come out of that. But the vast majority of examples you would read are going to be uh, on the more negative side. And so I, I thought that that would really work well with what I had already um, come up with in terms of, of story ideas and, and my desire to write a haunted house story. Yes. That just as an aside, is is that the Equality House? Is that the one that yes, yes, the, the Westboro Baptist Church thing? Yes, yeah, exactly. that that it delights me that the, the Westboro Baptist Church. These are the people who used to kind of rally at, at, at the funerals of gay kids who'd been killed or committed suicide, like vile people, and someone built a rainbow coloured house opposite them. So, like, yeah, that yes. is a. It's a delightful monument that I really do like it. But, but again, like you say, it is a spite house. It's just aimed at pissing off the bad guys. So, um, right. yeah, that, yeah. But I mean, your spite house is unambivalently a bad place to be. But before we jump into the kind of the inner workings of your, your ghost story, Johnny, I know that you're someone who knows a lot about the genre. You've got your own podcast, Healthy Fears, where you dig into you know, different kinds of fears and the uses and the tropes. And you're welcome to talk about that podcast, but you're clearly someone who understands this genre. So I want to talk about how you see your novel as fitting into the broader tradition of like the, the great American haunted house or, you know, the great legacy of the American bad place that comes up again and again. Are, are there any particular inspirations that, that come to mind? Oh man. Uh, so, so many. Um, I mean, my opening paragraph, which I, I've, I did my best Shirley Jackson impersonation, which is, I'm so glad you said I mean, that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's impossible to impersonate that, that opening paragraph, the famous opening paragraph to, um, the haunting of Hill house, which is immaculate. It's, it's stellar. It, all the superlatives you want to heap on it, they're all deserved. And I, I basically, my opening paragraph was trying to do a bit of an impression of, of hers, um, in terms of conveying the sense immediately, this house is alive. And like you just mentioned, it's a bad place to be. And I mean, the, the, in, in the haunting of Hill house, Hill house 
the words Hill House not sane. That that's four of the scariest words you know, mm. strung together, I think, in all of all of literature, and four of the most impactful. You're conveying immediately this house is alive, it is also not sane. And we know that this is the setting of the place based on the title. <laughs> this is going to be a, a horrible experience for anybody who who sets foot in the house. It's a terrifying idea. So I wanted to convey some of that as well in um the story. And that was a, a major inspiration for me. Um the uh a more a, a more recent um you know several more recent I, I guess examples come to mind as well. There there was a burnt offerings um from the, the 70s, um, which is another one, another situation where the house is in a sense alive and it is active in a, in a way that makes you understand gradually that it is sentient and not only is it sentient, it is sapping some, some life force from its surroundings and um, kind of reconfiguring itself as it, as it goes along based on the people that are inhabiting the house. So um, that was a, a major inspiration for me as well. And just like like you mentioned, there's a long history of the, the great American haunted house, the great American bad place. And I think even yeah, obviously overseas, um, a lot of great haunted house stories that that um, haunt to, from haunted houses to haunted castles, haunted manors, all these wonderful places. So even for me growing up, one of the big inspirations I took was not even out directly from from literature, but the idea of actual haunted houses, the place that you would hear about, the bad place that you would maybe talk about with your friends in the neighborhood, mm. um, that you'd read about in a book of allegedly haunted places, and they'd have some wonderfully simple yet impactful and terrifying description of why it's haunted, what the backstory was. And I wanted to give it a sense of history. In, in that way as well and give it that that feel of this is the place that everyone knows is haunted and we just kind of understand that it's there and live with it even though we're a little bit terrified of it almost like it's a natural disaster waiting to happen that everybody just kind of understands this this is there we live in the literal shadow of it kind of like it's a dormant volcano um that we built around and just kind of understanding hopefully it's not going to happen in my generation or my kids generation or my grandkids generation but at some point something horrible is going to happen with this place that's beautifully put yeah and, and that thing about the shadow i kept thinking that there was some some direct reference in this to salem's lot because the spite oh, yeah. house is called masson house and of course the the bad place in salem's law and i think king was the first one perhaps to use the phrase the bad place in that way and he attributes that that term to the marston house so you've got marston house masson house they both loom down over their respective towns um with a real sense of threat this thing on the hill that is never quite out of your mind if you live in that place it's always there like at the corner of your eye or the back of your mind that sense of menace. It's it's so fascinating that you mentioned that because I I don't think I was actively thinking of it, but it had to be subconsciously in there because um, Salem's Lot is is my favorite King novel um, easily. I've, I've read I think just about everything he's ever written, um, and that's still the my, my favorite of them all. And you're absolutely right. Marson House has that exact same sense of menace on the hill looming over the town. Like you said, it feels like it's always in the corner of your eye. I love the way you, you uh, put that. You know, the idea that the old house on the hill that everybody is afraid of, that everybody's going to to talk about, and that you know something horrible is going to come descending down from the hill. I love that imagery of it. 
Um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's there. It's it's I likened it earlier to a volcano because I just I think of it almost like you know an invisible pyroclastic flow of negative energy is going to someday come out of this and sweep over the town and nobody's going to be able to escape it. Um, and so that had to be subconsciously in in my mind because how of how much I love uh, Salem's Lot. I got the name Masson from um, it's some local uh, history that is actually kind of peppered into the story as well. It's a, a, the name of the town, uh, the name of the house. A lot of these things are are references to local history that I took inspiration from from the Texas Hill Country. But it just happens to to merge there, and there there had to be some subconscious activity at play there also connecting the 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 dots there as well you talk very good haunted house you've got some great turns of phrase for this stuff i'm already thinking out for my whimsical title to the episode paraclastic flow of horror maybe (laughs) um right so okay so with, with those precedents in place knowingly or otherwise i'm I'm guessing that you came to this thinking, I, you know, I've, I've got to do something new with the tradition because we, you, know, you can't just spin your wheels with this stuff. It's because, I mean, how do you ever, unless you go, go in a new direction, how does anyone compete with Shirley Jackson? You know what I mean? So I suppose, how did you choose to do that? Because to me, you, you, you do something new with the ghost story in the haunted house, both in terms of the building itself and also how the ghost inside it function you're, you're absolutely right especially for this is my debut right and so mm. you don't get as, as much benefit of the doubt i think as a new author returning to this to to previously explored um features and dynamics of a haunted house this this you i feel like you've got to try to bring something new to the table like you said and there's nothing completely new under the sun we all know that but at least an angle that nobody's ever viewed this from before so Somebody, or at least is, is underexplored. So part of what I tried to do, like you mentioned with the ghosts, I wanted them to function a little bit differently. I wanted to embrace some of the classic traditions of, of haunted houses. I, For me, when I read a lot of uh, um, haunted house fiction, which I, I do read a considerable amount of, I'm a huge horror fan and have been for a long, long time. Um, I, I do feel like, in, in not just the haunted house respect, but in a lot of respects uh, with when it comes to the supernatural, classic legends, etc. We tend to recycle what's happened previously in literature and less what we've seen from, like I mentioned previously, old lore and old legends, um, familiar stories um, of supposedly true hauntings. And even nowadays, frankly, the the supposedly true hauntings don't even kind of have that same um, energy as, as the stuff that I grew up with that scared me because nowadays <laughs> it's a lot of ghost hunting and I'm not here to disparage anybody who's you know into ghost hunting. I actually have somebody who I consider a friend who was, who was, uh, was a part of a project um, related to that. And so like uh, there are some, some, some kind of comments made at the expense of a particular set of ghost hunters early on in my book. Um, but that's just more reflective of that character. For me, it's more about, um, as much as you know, I, I understand the entertainment value and even the genuine interest some people may have in that. I was always more fascinated when I was younger by just the story aspect of it and the old um, history of a of a place and the idea. Even one of the earliest ghost stories I remember reading uh, about that was supposedly a legend was the ghost of Anne Boleyn, and she's supposed to haunt multiple places. She haunts the Tower of London. She haunts. Um, various other places where she'd lived and some of her 
sightings are um, more, uh, you know, just just more uh, kind of standard. She's just kind of wandering the halls and whatnot. And then there's one that's absolutely horrifying where she's holding her head under her arm and running down Mm -hmm. the halls screaming at night. And so the idea of ghosts occupying multiple places and, you know, they can kind of um, they're they're existing across almost multiple timelines, it seems, in in their own mind. And they kind of don't know where they are and what they're doing. Those are the kind of things I wanted to explore that I I feel like you get a sense of when you read about a a story from, you know, read from a book from the 30s or 40s or 50s about these are the alleged haunted places I have. Um, one of my favorite books that I have in my, my personal library is Lord Halifax's book of ghosts or book of hauntings. Um, I believe it's uh, just kind of shorthand is Lord Halifax's ghost book. And it's just all like just old, old school style English hauntings, but they're all supposed to be true. And they're all very brief and quick. And the ghosts are all just really odd and, and sinister. And the behavior <laughs> is kind of unexpected. It's the old uh, whistle and I'll come to you, my lad uh, kind of vibe too, that I wanted to, to kind of, bring back to the surface so part of you know just a I, I know i can i can talk <laughs> talk your ear off but part of the the ideas that i had behind it um were, were to view it from that kind of perspective as far as how the, the ghosts are going to behave and the engagement with the ghosts even from the characters themselves i also wanted to present characters who um, we find out very early on in the story are not um they're they're anticipating running into ghosts. They're not um, thinking of this as like an impossibility. I kind of wanted to bypass the the whole you know set of chapters where people are skeptical at first and then eventually have to accept the fact that yes, there are ghosts here. I wanted to give us characters that kind of jump into it from a different perspective and a different mindset, and so they're more much more prepared for the ghostly activity while at the same time still very nervous about what it's going to to mean whenever they're in the presence of a ghost that's a great rounded answer um and there's a lot to unpick from that you are right about the thing that like even real quote real world ghost stories have got duller and tamer it, it always seems to be phenomena these days like you know invisible things or a feeling or or orbs orbs piss me off quite a lot right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. it strikes me as as hilarious that orbs became a common thing just as we all got smartphones with flashes and of course you know it's, it might just be dust mites but anyway um but yeah you, I, I want my ghost to be like a victorian guy in a top hat in the corner you know that's what or or an, like an old nun like bleeding from someone i want proper yes. ghosts and you you give a bit of that in this we give quite a lot of that in this but your your ghosts are of more than one kind there's, there's a kind of taxonomy of ghosts in this story some are some are quite traditional you know some are created by rage and spite like a little like the Juon from the grudge franchise you know if you die in oh, great yeah. torment you will come back like a really pissed off specter um and then there's a whole other kind of ghost that you've alluded to about you know being in more than one place at a time um almost like the gopple the doppelganger thing and, and then there's a whole thing about potentially subverting death and i don't want to go too much into that because that's a big hinge of the novel um but yeah you you've run the gamut really I, which is the scariest to you who's this because this doesn't need to be a spoiler who's the scariest ghost in your book in your opinion man great question love this um like you said just kind of alluding to the idea of subverting death 
Um, there is a direct inspiration I'm taking, and that's the scariest one to me, the, the idea of it, which is interesting because that's also potentially the most, I mean, not, not even potentially, I'd say that's probably the most sympathetic, but it's still the scariest encounter, I think, for me it, that I wrote in the book, because it reminds me of something I read when I was young that stuck with me that I'm, um, I, I make multiple references to in the book, actually, and, and the direct encounter um, is is the, the most, um, you know, I guess, explicit example, but there was a, a book called Ghostly Terrors that I read when I was probably seven years old, written by a very prolific author named uh, Daniel Cohen, an, an American author who wrote a lot of books, just little small books about ghost stories and monsters and strange happenings geared for children that were allegedly true uh, occasions. And there was a story I'd read um, about a priest who had died. And then on the way back from the funeral, the whole town they see him actually walking along the road after they've gone to his funeral. And then everybody sees him walking along the road and he has this look of hatred on his face that they are um, just startled by. And so now he's walking back and he's walking back along the road toward his house. So he's coming home and then they go there. They're worried about his mother who was so overcome with grief. She couldn't even attend the funeral. So she had to stay home and she's been you know bedridden and everything. They go back to, to her place to see if she's okay. And she tells them he showed up at the house and he looked through the window and she, you know, like heard somebody at, at near the door. She was able to manage to get out of bed, go to the window. She sees him at the window and he's just staring in through the window with this baleful look on his face. And nobody knows why he came back. Nobody knows why he was nursing all this hatred. Um, mm. After that, he just immediately disappears. The story ends, which is just a vibe that I, I always loved from the stories you you know, read as a kid, because there was just a lot of unexplained, it was understood that things are just going to be unexplained. Why is he so hateful? How was he able to come back? You just kind of understood, hey, strange things happen. And there are multiple types of ghosts. And this is one of the ones that was driven by hatred to temporarily defy death, just it seems like to come back and look at his mother one last time and <laughs> let her see that he had a lot of held in hate on his face that he could not show while he was living and had been saving for the moment he died. And it just terrified me as a kid. And so that idea to me, even though the way I tried to reverse course a little bit on that and create a sympathetic version of it, it's still chilling to me when I was having, you know, going through my rewrites and edits on the story, because I, I knew I remembered that I was, um, trying to do my version of this, this very simple, direct story from my childhood. And I, I felt that, that chill still in me um, mm. whenever I was, I was redoing that. And I, I just had the idea that even though my version of this character is um, sympathetic, I try to write with a sense of this is not uh, an isolated incident. I try to convey the idea that this might be happening to other people uh, around the world and in other scenarios maybe this isn't going to go in, uh, in the direction that it goes in my story it could go in a a much more sinister direction mm -hmm. yeah yeah that is I, I know i know the encounter you're talking about now well it's more than one encounter but, but yeah it, yeah something about that tale of the priest it that's ringing a bell i think i've read that somewhere something about him walking it's... on the road with a face full of hate that is reminding me of something it originates. It's not a. It's not an American story. It originated, um, I think, on, on your side of the uh, the pond there. So, um, and I I can't remember the. I went and researched it at some point. I can't remember off the top of my head now exactly where the the story's origin comes from. But I know it's 
it's a uh, it's European, and I want to say it's somewhere um, UK area or something along those lines. When I finally, you know, as an older, you know, when I when I grew up, and I wondered if is this based on anything, and then I found a a story that actually what what it was based on. Um, so I know that it's closer. The, the story, the source of it is closer to to your side of the world than mine. So that, well, that would make do, sense we, if it's familiar to you. Yeah, we specialize in creepy, pissed off priests. So yeah, that <laughs> that, that makes sense. Um, the, another thing in the book that creeped me out is, and again, I'm going to tread carefully, but a, a main thread, a, a main motivation for one character is the fear of what will happen after death. What is waiting for them after death? Um, and you know, there, there are people, there's references to people dying with a look of absolute horror or anguish on their face. And, and, and this person is kind of clinging to the hope that that is a look that they had on their face before they died and not a response to what they saw on the other side. And I, I found that a really creepy idea. Cause I mean, I'm a sort of, you know, committed atheist, but I remember reading something or hearing something years ago about, about a hospital, about the amount of palliative care nurses and doctors who reported people on the cusp of death becoming suddenly terrified about supposedly things they could see waiting for them. And there's these creepy anecdotes about people coming back from near-death experiences talking about things they'd seen in the darkness and things that were waiting and being terrified of death ever after. And I found that just such a, a creepy idea that you played with. Kind of, uh, it kind yeah. of excuses the villainy of certain characters in, in some ways. I, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up. It's it's funny because the the character you're talking about it, mentioning excusing the the villainy that was like intentional on my part, mm-hmm. and uh, that character went on a, a definite journey of development over the course of of writing where I actually thought they were more even more sympathetic um, than most of the people who I've I had test read it early on and um, up through even the the editing process. People were saying, ah, you know, I I get what you're trying to do here, but this person's still pretty pretty diabolical and I, I still have a bit of a soft spot for them so i appreciate that you actually kind of <laughs> see that as well because my my uh which uh, people have said they they enjoy the character but also they're like yeah I, I don't see the same um quite quite the same sympathy for them that you do and i, I was thinking man like i guess i'm maybe maybe i'm a softy i don't, I don't know <laughs> but I, I kind of i kind of see it from your perspective as well and that's that's another thing just you know the, the kind of uh, classic horror traditions um, and like I said, I mean, I, I know I'm kind of beating a dead horse a little bit here, but it is so much of what drives me, um, for, from my writing perspective, the, the story you told, I mean, the, the, the examples you told in the real world are that that's just harrowing and horrifying. And then I, I think that that's reflected in the old ghost lore, which entertained me so much when I was, I was growing up and, and I could never get enough of the idea of, um, people who would maybe survive an incident, but would have a look of absolute horror on their face and, you know, your hair would go white and all these kind of stories of what you might see on the other side and what might happen to you, you know, what's, what's waiting for you. If you get a glimpse of um, a spirit or the other side, you know, the, just the concept of even, you know, what, what I feel like has been lost a little bit. And like you said, the orbs and you know, don't even, I, I could go on and on about how annoying orbs are to me. Like, like you said, just from, even just a, you know, because I I view a lot of this stuff from an entertainment perspective. I have very mixed, to to put it mildly, I guess, feelings about you know actual hard belief in the subject that I I just you know I don't feel like it's all that interesting to get into from my mm-hmm. perspective. Um, but just like from just a, a interest or entertainment perspective, orbs just strike me as 
in, incredibly boring, an incredibly boring version. I'm, I'm with you. I want Victorian style ghosts. I want hauntings. I want moaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here's a question for you. Before we move on from ghosts, because I, I would love to talk ghosts all day, but there are other things in this book to get at. But before we move on, most haunted houses are big because mm. space is mm-hmm. scary because you can fill it with all sorts of dark imaginings, right? And who knows what's happening in the West Wing when you're not there, you know? Was it a practical challenge to make a small building scary? <laughs> yes. What a great question. I love this. Um, yes, it was. It was one of it, it was one of the things that made me a little bit anxious about actually pursuing writing the story legitimately. Even at the very, very beginning, when I was fascinated by the idea of a spite house, and then I took my inspiration for my spite house from a very specific uh, spite house in Boston, here in the states, um, called the Skinny House, and that's the primary inspiration. Although it's it's a little bit of a, an amalgam of multiple. Um, spite houses, but I did like the idea of creating this very skinny house and kind of doing something very different, like you said, from how most haunted houses are. Space is scary. Even just a large, regular house. I, I see sometimes people living in a giant house, and I just think that would be... I would get a little anxious about just the idea that somebody could be living on the other side of this house, <laughs> and I, I would never even know it, right, if it's large enough. So the idea of having this confined space and trying to make it as scary as possible when there's only so much that you can, you know, explore. Um, I was very nervous about um, trying to make sure that I, I, I capture that. And that was a practical challenge. And I, um, I basically, you know, created a, a very specific area of the house that is the, the most concentrated, uh, the, the place that has the most concentrated um, haunting energy and kind of the forbidden uh, foreboding place in the house and was able to thrive off of that a little bit in the idea that people are at least kind of either avoiding it or there's going to be trouble if you get stuck in here and you're kind of knowing that this bomb is waiting there to explode metaphorically speaking as as the story goes on that helped and um i did you know move around some of the action to other places because as you mentioned it from a practical sense there's only so much you can eventually do in this very very confined very limited space um, so we did move move um, the action around to some other locations, which allowed me to kind of broaden the scope of the, the horror and the idea that the entire town itself is kind of haunted by its history. And the the spite house is just kind of the, the primary area. It's the battery that is um, providing that energy to the rest of the town. It is the focal point of it all, but the entire town really is is subject to a varying degrees of of ghosts and hauntings. And that was kind of my my uh, workaround for that, so to speak. Well, yeah, because as claustrophobic as the spite house is, the story is far from it because it's quite an expansive story. There's a lot to deal with. There's like, as you say, the history of the town, there's multiple layers of history that have happened in the house and elsewhere. There's the entire separate mystery of why Eric and his daughters are on the run, which could be its own novel easily. Yeah. Plus, you've got multiple POVs. We see through the eyes of almost every character in the book, even when it's not, I suppose, structurally essential that we do so. I mean, it's a whole lot for 250 pages. <laughs> so as somebody who is, I mean, I have my issues with brevity. I, I you know, why use, why use one word when 10 will do? You know, did you, did you opt for brevity? 
Or, or maybe a better question, how did you stop this sprawling like it must have wanted to? Oh, um, man, great question. Um, brevity is actually a huge challenge for me because, as you probably can tell from the way I talk, um, I'm just like you. I, I'm prone to be verbose when you don't need to, and that spills over into my writing a lot. So I'm actually very conscious of it, and I work really hard to be as uh, as economical with my words as possible. And I read Hemingway and I read um, uh, Elmore Leonard and Walter Mosley and some of these great crime writers um, who get through the action very quickly and have a lot of complicated stories uh, going simultaneously and some kind of crazy conspiracy in a story, but they managed to jam it all into a tightly packed, fast-moving um, book and I I read those and reread those um, probably more often than I re- read a lot of other uh, things just because I, I'm trying to get my writing to be tighter, knowing it's never going to be that tight, but just to try to prevent myself from having it sprawl the way I naturally just would if I if I just went full self indulgent and um, you know just just let loose with what I really wanted to because I could have explored all the different towns mysteries and all the hauntings. And like you said, basically given our lead characters and, and what their circumstance is really its own you know, book and, and done all that. And this easily could have turned into like 450 pages, which is just not going to work for a debut. It's never going to sell. Um, I, I would have never picked up an agent probably if, if I would have had all that going, I don't think. Um, so that's how I, how I um, managed to, to avoid having it spill over into to be too much and keep it uh, tightly packed is just that I'm very conscious of the fact that that's kind of a, uh, to me, I would consider it a, a bit of a weakness in my, in my natural writing style is that I will sometimes revisit the same metaphor two or three times. If I think of two different, two or three different ways to say it, I'm like, man, I, I want to say this in every way that I've thought of, of conveying it and do that and explore every side story and everything. And I'm just so aware of it that I probably try to overcompensate as much as I can to go in the opposite direction to prevent my stories from, from succumbing to that, that weakness that I have. One of the most compelling characters doesn't actually appear physically in the book, only in memory and anecdote. And that's, is it Papa Fred? He's yes. this, the great patriarch of, of Eric's family. And he is a complicated man. And I mean, I wonder whether you can tell us in brief a little about him. And because I still can't work out whether he represents traits to be applauded or or kind of not condemned, but criticized. You know, he's, he's a complex bear of a man. Yes, he is. Thanks. Thanks. I, I love this character, actually. Another example of I mean, I could write an entire prequel based around his history and I've thought of it in my head and I may someday do that um, because he's one of my favorite characters and he doesn't get it. Like you mentioned, there's other characters who get a POV who are less essential to the story, probably from a, a standpoint of direct or, or eventual impact or longstanding impact. And he, yet he doesn't get a POV. Um, he's just kind of this legend. He's this figure. He's, he's a man who had survived something horrible in the past um, and Maybe, you know, there are rumors, maybe he took some vengeance, maybe he didn't. He certainly leans into the rumors and the reputation he has of being somebody who you don't want to cross, but also who was justified maybe in the actions that he maybe took or maybe didn't. And there's a lot of mystery and legend around him. 
And to an extent, I, I want to be very clear here because my grandfather was an awesome, amazing person who is kind of the, the, the opposite in a lot of ways. Um, and in most of the critical ways, at least uh, from Papa Fred, there's not a lot of ambiguity about, oh, you know, was he somebody to be, you know, applauded or not? One of my heroes in my life. But I did want to, uh, he had also, my grandfather was a, a large man. He's got a great physicality to him, um, deep voice. And I just kind of wanted to take a certain um, uh, aspect of that and, you know, think of what if these traits that you admire have a history to them that make it a little bit more complicated. I feel like that's part of the the beauty of the horror genre. In literature and fiction in general, you know, we explore this a lot, but especially in horror, if we can we can complicate things and... and um, make them see, see some more depth there. And so do the ends justify the means or his methods? Um, like, like you said, or his methods and his approach to life and his, his kind of, a uh, his life motto that he lives by, are these things really to be admired? Um, or are they going to be more detrimental to you? Or is there some kind of combination of it, which is, you know, the way it is most of the time in life with, with just about anything. And then it, Obviously, we don't like to think of it that way because that means you have to make a decision about it every single time a choice comes up. It's much easier to live a life when you just have a steady mantra. And no matter what the situation is, you don't have to be flexible about it. You can just say, this is the way I do things. And um, whether it's you know going to turn out good or turn out bad, at least I stuck by my guns. This is what I do. Versus every time something comes up, now I have to you know consider maybe is this a positive, maybe is this a negative. Um should I abandon my my uh, motto? Should I embrace it this on this occasion? You have to think of that every single time you have a, a choice to make. That's going to be more complicated, mm. and that's that's this character basically. He he leaves this legacy as an inheritance to our main characters, and they all have to kind of navigate the idea of what of how much of a positive or negative or in between influence he is on their lives. And it, he's he was one of my favorite characters to write. One of my favorite scenes uh, to write involves him, even though it's a very, in a, in a very practical sense, uh, a very scary scene and a very ugly kind of moment where he is trying to get his uh, great granddaughter to embrace um, his 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 idea in life at the expense of a another child, basically, mm. and kind of forcing this this without directly doing so kind of imposing because of his reputation and his nature and his, uh, you know, just the, the sense of fear he instills in people imposing this on somebody else and making her witness it, um, thinking this is going to toughen her up and make her stronger and more fearless. And as we see throughout the story, I think it does have a, a sort of positive impact, but she also has to navigate the idea of maybe this was over the top. Maybe I shouldn't be going this far whenever I, I take a certain view on things. Well, it's, I'm glad you brought that scene up. And big, right, sorry, this is supposed to be an, inter an interview with you, but I'm just going to talk about myself go for ahead, a second go ahead. here. But I, Fred spoke to me so profoundly because he is so like my dad. Like you mm. said, he, you know the the traits of your grandfather are in him. Like my dad's, I always say this all the time. My dad's like 87 in April. Like he's, he was 47 when I was born. So he, he comes from most, most grandparents generations, you know, yeah. grew up in like the a really, really rough part of Manchester in the North of England in a very violent time, you know, truly kind, lovely man, but he has a streak of ruthlessness in him. Mm. And Fred has this motto that that's how you avoid being someone that something happens to. 
you make it ha- you make it happen to someone else first. That is the kind of words my dad would say. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this thing about don't let anyone hurt you with impunity. Um, and almost a sort of strike first mentality. And I grew up with that. And reading Eric, who is tussling with his own what what we would I suppose now call toxic masculine traits, you know, that that is still a part of him. I feel a bit of that because I grew up when I was in my teens thinking that sometimes lashing out or violence was a kind of appropriate solution to certain problems, you know? I'm making my family sound like a complete set of degenerates now, but that's <laughs> not the case at all. But you get wiser, you know, now I would never react like that. But I just saw so much of my dad and myself in Eric's relationship with his great-grandfather. Um, it's a much more loving relationship in my case, a much more positive kind of masculinity but there's still traces of that there that model you can't quite live up to in some way and the the toll that takes on you um i found it really profound that there were anecdotal sketches that you give but they were my favorite parts of the book they surmounted any of the haunting i loved those bits because they they were so real to me for quite personal reasons and i i feel like that's man i'm so glad that that resonated with you so much and i hope it it impacts other readers that way as well. That That's one of the things I wanted to have was something that is more grounded in real world in the midst of all of the um, apparitional and very evident, very present supernatural elements to the story. I also wanted to have some of these things that people could relate to on a just personal level that regardless of what you believe in, etc., you probably have a family member maybe in your past who, if, whether it's directly um, in your lineage or somebody you're just kind of telling heard stories about or heard you know people tell the stories about um that's why i wanted like you said it's anecdotal his presence in the in the in the novel is entirely anecdotal um but it reminded me of of the stories you'd hear about more distant relatives and you'd kind of just hear something in passing that maybe you even weren't supposed to hear as a kid about Mm -hmm. how tough this family member was or this you know how reckless somebody was or they'd have a nickname that you would think you know I've, i've my uh, my, my great grandfather on my my grandmother's side, who I, I never knew, but and and she would very solemnly talk about, but he she just knows his name was Wild Bill. <laughs> she would say that, and she would just like say, "Yeah, there were a lot of wild stories about him, and that's you know that's why he had his name, and that was all we I, I've ever known about him. I just don't know another thing about him except for he was Wild Bill, and that wild in his name was meaningful, and that idea of that kind of presence in your history, I think a lot of us can relate to that. And so I wanted to to have Fred. Um, come across that way while at the same time having the impact that he does have on the story. Mm, yeah. Just, because I'm it, sorry, real, real quick. I, I've got to yeah. uh, attach my laptop charger. Just give me like five seconds. Yeah. And what, one of the things it made me think of in a really weird roundabout way was the shining because obviously the shining is part of that great lineage of haunted house stories. And and Jack in the shining is, it's kind of haunted by his father's presence in his life. And, and yes. that takes its toll. And I felt like there was a similar relationship between Eric and Fred, that this figure in the back is forcing Eric into a path he doesn't necessarily want to take. And that, that comes to fruition in, in quite, I suppose, quite a bleak way in, in, in the closing of the book. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, by the end of the book, um, you're, you're right. There's, there's, a to me, a bittersweet, bleak, element to it where Eric is trying to see some positive elements to maybe mm. the, the legacy his his grandfather's left behind but I wanted it to come across as he's he's 
to a certain extent, I think, um, trying to convince himself of something that he doesn't necessarily fully believe in. And, you know, he's, he's obviously in a, in a place where he's, he's, everything he's been through is going to, to leave him conflicted. I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that by any stretch. It is similar to that in The Shining, and it does make you wonder about the idea of, of the things that you inherit in terms of just the personality of the person that had a lot of influence over you, whoever it is that, that raised you. Um, and the, the the lingering elements of the way that they try to instill values that they might have seen as positive that as time evolves, values are just going to change. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, your father, I'm talking about my grandfather and my great grandfather and everything. You know, some of it's just going to be they're, they're trying to teach you how to live in the world that they already lived through, which is just, is just no more. And certain mm. certain aspects of reality are going to obviously just be around forever. But there there are always going to be changes, and sometimes they circle back. Sometimes certain values come back around and into vogue. But there are always going to be changes, and so that's the challenge as well of anybody you know in a parenting, grandparenting, any kind of guardian uh, position. You're trying to raise somebody to say and say this is what got me through life, but you can't predict the future of what's going to get your child, your grandchild through life. The world's going to change and you're not going to be able to be prepared for that. You're going to be out of touch with that. It's inevitable. And so the the complications of all of those those kind of things, I think, are, are what comes up in the in the story from a practical sense. And those are the things that people uh, hopefully I hope uh, I hope that they connect with in terms of what's scary beyond just the ghost story parts of it. Well, very much so. And, and it, it's noteworthy that we've we've not mentioned a kind of racial reading of this story at all up to now. And we're like 50 minutes in, you know, <laughs> which is interesting to me because striking how often a conversation with a horror writer from a particular identity group ends up being, re- the conversation ends up reduced to a conversation about that aspect of the book. Whereas in The Spite House, it feels to me at least like Eric's blackness is an additional layer of vulnerability for a man in his position, but your novel never dwells on that fact his his kind of dire straits are as much economic as as racial um although of course those two things are very intertwined would you agree with that yes i would and that was that was deliberate on my part for sure um like you said it's it's his blackness his family's blackness it is um it comes up earlier in the story in terms of how this is going to have an additional impact on their situation but at the same time, I wanted it to not be something that the story centers on and dwells on. And that mm. in the early you know, stages of trying to find an agent um, and getting certain feedback on the story, that actually came up as, as kind of a, you know, some, some pushback, basically, that I received from certain agents. Um, some of whom were also people of color who were you know, like, well, the, the story's, you know, it, it seems I thought it was going in one direction when they'd asked for the initial uh, early draft of it, and then they'd get the, the full copy. Um, they asked for the initial chapters, get the full copy, and they would say, "Well, I thought the story was going in a, in a more um, specifically racial direction, and then it didn't." And you know, like, would that be something you're willing to to look at? And I, I was I was pretty certain, I guess probably adamant even that I I didn't want to. I don't want to say reduce the story to that because I think there are a lot of great, powerful stories. One that I just bought at uh, the the book festival that I'm at here that center and focus. Um, the story on on some form of um, identity dynamics and, and oppression and bigotry, et cetera. 
Um, and I think those stories are obviously incredibly important to tell and valuable. I think a story like mine is also important to tell and, and has a lot of value. And I, I feel like there's, um, there, there are fewer of, of st- the types of stories that I'm telling in the spite house where, um, the, the identity element is not erased by any stretch. It is very much present and it comes up throughout the story. It's just not what the entire story ultimately ends up being about T- to not be as, obvious as maybe um it would be otherwise and i I want the the idea of the decision making that is tied into who to trust because you're worried about who might or might not be bigoted um i want that i even wanted some of that to kind of be um juggled and and kind of redirected in ways that you might not expect and i I hope i accomplished that with the story as well well i'm glad you brought that up right because yeah this is very interesting to me because it kind of continues a conversation I was having a few weeks ago. So a bit of context at first, right? So this is set, the Spite House kind of looms large above, is it Dejana, Dejana, how do you say the name? I'm, I've, I pronounced it Degner, and it's German, and I based that pronunciation on a doctor named, uh, a Dr. Degner that I found online who pronounces her name uh, as Degner. So I, I'm, I'm not claiming any specific knowledge about that, I just literally and basing it on how she pronounces it. So I've been going with Degner. Degner, right. This is this is one of those moments that happen all, all too often where I have massively overthought something, got really <laughs> smug about working something out and then been completely wrong. <laughs> First of all, I was right. I, I thought it was a riff on the word de- degenerate or degeneration. I thought it was like a, like a, you know an allusion to that. We're going to find out everyone was inbred or something in this town. <laughs> and then... Listen to this for how smug I was. I literally thought I've worked it out because there was a an Edward Degener who was a, a Texan politician. I believe he was on House of Representatives, and he reneged against the Confederacy within Texas during the era of Reconstruction. And I was like, right, basically, you know, Johnny has named it after Edward Degener because it reflects the progressive politics of the town. And I've been completely wrong. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're only, the, the, the pronunciation, the doctor pronunciation thing is the only thing um, that I was, I was referring to. Edward Degner is who the, the town is named after, 100%. 10,000%. I think you're just being kind now, Johnny. No, 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 I'll no, take no. It. I promise. <laughs> I promise because it's so, you're the only person who's actually uh, figured this out. This is amazing. The actual event, one of the, the, the big impetus events um, in the story, um, there's a, a vague allusion to it. Um, there's a, a monument in Comfort, Texas, in the Hill Country, that is, to my knowledge and, and to, the, to the research that I've done, the only monument to um, the Union from the Civil War that exists in formerly con- Confederate territory. And Edward Degner is a, a principal um, component of that monument because there was a massacre that is very similar to an event that takes place in the story that's probably going to be very evident to you. There was a massacre, the Nueces massacre that occurred in Texas during the civil war um, in which one of his sons um, or two of his sons were killed um, while trying to escape the Confederacy. And I mean, as, as you know, that so that's, this is evidence that I'm not just uh, placating you here. That is directly related to certain aspects of the story and Edward Degner um, commissioned that monument, which is, you know, uh, the inspiration for some some things that are are going to come up in the story, obviously as well. And that is exactly who the town was named after. I promise you. 
That is I've amazing. Mo- you're the first person <laughs> I've spoken to. The first person, and you're on the other side of the world, but you're the first person I've spoken to who actually uh, got that and, and took the time to research it. That's incredible. That's awesome, man. Well, I, I've never been more happy to be right. But <laughs> that that continues the conversation, right? I was saying I've had this chat recently. So I, I, I recently spoke to an author called C.J. Tudor who wrote a book called The Drift, which they, it couldn't be more different to The Spy House, but it, it's a book about a kind of pandemic. Um, and, and the book presents science in this really nuanced and complex light. And, and she and I got to talking about how you have to consider who we give power to, right? We were talking mm-hmm. about vaccinations and body autonomy and everything was very pro-vaccine and pro-science, but it, it occasioned a conversation about how, you know, good things can be done by bad people, you know, if we give power to people, yeah? And weirdly, the Spite House and Degener, the town, continues that that dialogue because it's a very complex town and, you know, you tussle within this town with this character called Eunice, this very powerful, rich woman. You tussle with the idea that sometimes progressive politics can be cynical or sometimes at, at direct odds with democratic principles. And and that just seems to me something worth talking about in a book set in old Texas Hill Country featuring a black protagonist working for a rich white woman. It seems an interesting detail that you've included, that thing about the 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 power she has over the town, even if she's using it for ostensibly good. Right. It's it's kind of the old school deal with the devil, you know, uh allegory there. Right. It's it's the idea of am I am I gonna get what I want, but at what price? Stories you hear about, you know, deals with tricksters or, you know, they are stories that or resolve with the devil being tricked out of the deal um, and, and somebody kind of getting out of it. And then maybe a, a different kind of punishment being uh, levied onto the person, the, the person who ultimately tricked the trickster. And so now they're cursed in, in, in a very different way, but there's always an idea of like, well, it's not just a straightforward, this is a bad deal. And now I give up my soul. It's well, they might um, reclaim their soul, but now they they get something else that, that negatively happens to them. And so in the real world, I feel like we deal with that a lot. There have been, like you mentioned, the, the you know immediate kind of great example of it is the idea that you can be pro-vaccination and still don't have to love the pharmaceutical companies that are um, behind it. Not think that you know they've put a microchip in the vaccine or something like that. I can just still think, um, I'm, I'm suspicious of you guys about all the other medicines maybe that you just, you know, you've, you've put into the world. We're not that far removed from by any stretch, from the the Sackler family getting a slap on the wrist for um, basically creating the the opioid uh, epidemic that is killing so many different people in in the United States, and very um, very consciously kind of being aware of how addictive the drugs they're they're pumping out into the world, um, very very aware of how addictive they are, and kind of seeing it as a positive in terms of oh this is going to help our bottom line, and we'll worry about mm-hmm. the consequences later. Um, these, you know, we, we have a, a lot of history of understanding why we shouldn't trust and give power to, to the point you're, you're talking about with the conversation you had earlier. We shouldn't be giving power blindly to certain forces just because they're doing one good thing here um, without understanding that we still need to, to maybe be 
um, suspicious of some of the activity they're going to have that might not be have anything to do with the the positive thing they're doing because we know they're still doing other things that are negative and detrimental to us. So there's again, kind of going back to the idea of uh, Papa Fred's uh, big motto and and the proactivity and the, the the discussion we talked about you know earlier in this in this conversation. We have to you know it's, it's a lot more challenging to have to think of these things on the fly and every time a, a choice comes up, make the decision in the moment and evaluate things individually. It's a lot easier to just say package deal everything together and say, oh well, if you're if if they're in favor of this, then we're going to treat them as as all the way positive, no matter what else they say. Instead, we you know we have to be a, we ideally should be, and I think most of us probably aren't, unfortunately, but um, you know just capable of employing a little more nuance in terms of progressive politics and somebody who seems to be on the side of of progressive ideals, if that's what you're behind. Um, but in turn, how are they going to to go about it? How are they going to do it? And are they doing this is a kind of a private power grab for them? Or are they doing this really for selfish reasons and they're not really in it for the greater good? And, you know, picking those uh, ideas apart individually, it's, it's harder, it's more challenging, but that would be the, the better way of going about things, I think. It's remarkable how often this podcast just ends up in a conversation between me and an author of every kind, of every different political affiliation, just screaming for more nuance in the world. It, it suggests to me that actually most of us are still sane and, and, and that the fringes of Twitter are not to be listened to. But listen, I, we could talk politics all day, and I would love to because nothing interests me more except for horror and ghosts. So let's, let's finish on a, on a lighthearted note, right? I've got to ask because the nature of your book, would you stay in a reputedly haunted house, Johnny? What would it take? <laughs> <laughs> so my own house is you know we've we've heard i'm i'm i call myself like agnostic basically about ghosts because i i don't necessarily believe in them but i've i've talked to people who have um some pretty strong beliefs and in, in have relayed some information to me in encounters that um it's i i always look at it from the perspective of i know how you know challenging it can be to come up with a, a cool story idea so i'm thinking if you just invented this entirely then uh, you're you're missing your calling. You should be a, a storyteller. You should be doing some some kind of a uh, writing or or making movies or something because you came up with a really great ghost story um, just to be telling it to me, just to to I guess trick me or something. I don't know. So, with all that having been said, um, I, I live in a house that is in a neighborhood that has a cemetery. It's old ranch land. <laughs> they sold you know the people the people that the that owned the ranch they sold it so now it's a boring subdivision. Um, but they've still got the they, part of the sale was the family cemetery could not be moved. So it's got 60 bodies in the cemetery. And I've definitely been in the house and heard the distinct sound of people moving around upstairs. There's like the sound of like a, just a knock or whatever. And you know, like, okay, that, that doesn't sound like anything. And then you'll, you'll hear like, okay, that was, that sounded like footsteps. And then you go upstairs and um, nobody's there to the extent that one time I, I was absolutely convinced my, my spouse, one of her sons, I, I convinced he had like snuck a girl over and, um, everybody else was gone and that she was like, Oh no, like he left me behind. And like, they thought I was going to be gone, but I was working from home. And so I was walking upstairs saying, Hey, you know, like, just make sure you're, you're clothed. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to try to get you in trouble or something. I'm not going to be mad. I just want to verify that you're here, you know, just <laughs> yeah. get yourself situated. And, you know, if you need a ride home or something, we can, we can talk about that later. You're not, you know, I'm not going to be like yelling at you, whatever. And nobody's coming out of any of the rooms. And so then I kind of go into the rooms all cautiously, fully expecting that there's going to be some scared little uh, girlfriend here. 
and nobody in any of the rooms. So, you know, maybe she, she was there and she snuck out behind me, but I feel like the, the, the there's alarms in the house. They would have announced if she somehow got out the house anyway. Um, so I, I stay in that house and it, I'm, I'm the opposite of everybody who's in a haunted house movie. And they're like, why don't they just move? I'm like, well, let's, let's let the haunting play out a little bit. Cause some things are way less frightening than ruining your credit and having to deal with the, <laughs> the, the housing market. Like I, I can deal with even some, you know, late night moaning or whatever, as long as I know you're not going to physically attack me, I, I feel like I'd be fine. Yeah. Uh, that said, yeah. I'm not going out of my way necessarily to stay in, in haunted places, but I'm also not exactly, if, if I hear about it, I'm like, oh, we got to avoid, we got to avoid that room. Or we got to avoid this hotel if I'm in this town and they say it's haunted. I'm, I'm vaguely curious about, you know, the idea of staying in these places, but I'm, I'm less enamored with the experience itself than the story, right? Like, mm-hmm. like we talked about earlier, like the, the ghost hunting um, stories and, and the TV shows and whatnot. Those have interested me far, far. Like I, I can't even express it. It's infinitely less that those interest me than just rereading like Lord Halifax's ghost book or just watching an old episode of In Search Of that isn't really trying to experience it and, and you know putting on the, the the presentation of we've got equipment to monitor it and capture on film or whatever. And I, I'd rather hear the stories. I like the stories. The stories are what entertain me and engage me. So staying in a haunted house to me is is not as potentially fun as the idea of just driving past one and having somebody tell me, oh, that place, everybody in, in town knows that, that you don't go in there. Oh, really? Why? I want to hear somebody tell me about it rather than actually bother with staying in it. I'll tell you what you should read when it comes out. Um, in fact, it will be out by the time this episode goes live. Mariana Enrique's Our Share of Night. Talk about a bad place and the house in the neighborhood that you shouldn't go into and why you shouldn't go into. That book will tell you the story. I would recommend it. I've got it on my list. Our share of night, yeah. It you know it's releasing the same day as uh, the Spite House here. I was yeah. like, man, we've got a we've got a good slate of uh, horror releases between myself and the Stephen Graham Jones. If you're a horror fan, we've got some we've got some great ones coming up for you. And yeah, that's I've already got that one on my list to pick up. I can't wait. Well, what a great segue to the final two questions I always ask. Can you recommend a book for my listeners, Johnny, and tell us why you've picked that one? I'm going to recommend uh, Flowers. For the Sea by Zen E. Rocklin. Um, the reason I'm recommending it is because it is it's the book I've reread the most here in the the early stages of the decade. Um, it's a couple of years old now. It's a it's a novella. It's it's a breezy read in my opinion, but it's also very complex, very impactful. Kind of gets into some of the things that we talked about earlier in our discussion here in terms of the the examination of anger in the story and righteous anger and righteous hatred and the idea of Maybe your 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 anger is going to take you too far, or does it not take you far enough? And is your d- decision defensible? Like you kind of mentioned earlier, talking about one of the characters in the Spite House, and so that is um, that is flowers for the CN. That is that is one of my favorite books of the 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 decade so far. Well, Zin came on the show to talk about it last August. Oh, oh awesome! Yeah, we um, we had a a last minute slot to fill because Joyce Carol Oates had a meltdown, didn't she? So we, uh, <laughs> yeah. we, uh, <laughs> so that's an awesome replacement. I'm so glad if you had to replace her with somebody, that's fantastic on you, man. Fantastic. And we had a fantastic conversation about that book and all the things you talked about came up, the anger, the world building, all of that stuff, the body horror. Um, if people yes. want to listen to that, it's episode 107. You can find it way back in the, uh, the chronicles of talking scare but yeah that's that's a good kind of slightly off kilter recommendation excellent 
My last question, Johnny, which I ask every single person, it's always good for a laugh, this or sometimes not. What truly scares you? Whew. A lot of things have truly scared me. It's, it's like I, I'm, <laughs> it's like hard to narrow it down a little bit. Um, I'm going to narrow it down to the thing that I've had the second most nightmares about, I believe second most now in, in my life, uh, which is tornadoes. I grew up in Mississippi in the South, and the idea of a tornado was always just kind of horrifying. And it's weird because I'm also incredibly fascinated by them. And like pretty much anything, I'm, I'm almost anything I'm afraid of in my life, I think, I kind of gravitate toward it. I kind of can't keep away from it, even mm-hmm. though it, it, I get it terrifies me. I have um, regular recurring nightmares about tornadoes. Just I'm, have a dream. I'm driving out and there's the funnel cloud coming down. And then there's another, and it's always like a, a, a team of tornadoes seemingly. And you know where you, everywhere you turn, it's like, Oh, like we've got a cluster here and they're, they're surrounding you. And uh, that was always like the sense growing up, like at any moment. And I've never seen one. I've never been in one, thankfully. Um, but that was the sense growing up in, in kind of a, a region where tornadoes had occurred previously. There was always that, worry and we would have tornado drills in school and you know hey okay go into the hallway and um duck and cover basically and it was like is that really going to help us out in a tornado i don't know it feels like it feels like we is, should we have a better shelter somewhere or something i don't know <laughs> i've i've kind of run my own tornado drill scenarios in my head in my house and realized that i'm you know we're not exactly living in a house that probably can withstand a really strong tornado strike if, if one unfortunately did occur See, sometimes people answer that question with slightly irreverent things or slightly abstract things. Or in the case of Rachel Harrison, she said garden gnomes. And far (laughs) be it from me to say that any fear is invalid. My God, I'm scared of so many stupid things. But when people say tornadoes, I'm like, yeah, that's that's a perfectly valid fear. It literally fucking pulls your house away. And you know what I mean? It's like I am on board with the tornado fear. That seems reasonable to me. Yeah, particularly living where you live, because you've moved from Mississippi to like an even worse place for tornadoes. We're we're, we're San Antonio is right at the bottom. Like we we are at an area where we just basically dodge it. But I, the night I graduated high school, I remember there was a crazy storm and stayed out all night, and it felt like it was okay. That was the night that like about a I don't know a, an hour north of San Antonio, one of the most devastating tornadoes in Texas history hit a town and unfortunately you know there were some some casualties and everything and i remember just thinking that night like i was out partying with my friends just having a good time and we were within you know like a, a relatively short distance from like an all-time historical tornado and you know we realized there's a storm and it's part of, part of the same storm system so i'm i'm vaguely fortunate because um san antonio doesn't really see the tornadoes but we're like on the doorstep of it, like places get tornadoes all the time. And we'll always hear, Oh, it just happened like about 30 minutes North of, of San Antonio. <laughs> and so it feels like we're right there, but we're like right there close enough to just, you know, be able to say, Oh, it, it almost hit us once again, but we got lucky. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it probably wasn't, uh, you know, the, the wisest move for a guy who's scared of tornadoes, which again is why I've, I've, I continue to have nightmares about them. And I, I still regularly evaluate, okay, which rooms of the house are going to be safe, which we have, uh, basically one um, that is not going to fit everybody in the household in the case of a tornado. And I've already kind of resigned myself to the, you know, okay, I'm, I'm the, I'm the adult male of the house. So it's, it's which, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to save everybody else. And I guess I'll figure out whatever else I got to do. I'll be, I'll be the person standing outside, <laughs> outside the room when it happens. 
I'd be in the room. I don't know. I'd be in the room. Yeah. You're like, I'll stand on somebody's shoulders. We'll, fi- we'll figure yeah. it out. We- we'll yeah. Make some yeah. I- but then it gets hit like Titanic. I'd have got on the goddamn door. You know what I mean? Like, there would have been room on that door for me anyway. Yeah. Right. Johnny, we've talked for one of my longest episodes yet. And I really appreciate your time because I know you've got places to be and books to sign and readings to give, etc. By the time this goes live, the spite has all been out for a week. And I hope everyone picks it up and reads it and encounters a, a truly different kind of ghost story. But for now, Johnny, just thank you for talking scared. Thank you for having me on. This was a fantastic conversation. I loved speaking to Johnny. What a lovely, lovely man. And in fact, I mentioned a few episodes back that sometimes I like a book generally, but then I speak to the author and develop a far greater admiration for the work. And The Spite House is a prime example of that. I did already enjoy it. It's nicely spooky and the characters are interesting for sure. And I read it in an old creepy farmhouse in Wales. I was away for the weekend with my wife and some friends. So, you know... The atmosphere was ripe for enjoying a spooky story. But speaking to Johnny made me think that it's really quite a striking piece of fiction. He clearly knows the lineage and the tradition of his story. And he's written a clear homage, whilst definitely taking pains to do something properly new with the bare bones of the American bad place. The book does clearly follow the contours of Hill House and The Shining and burnt offerings, but only in the same way that the Lion King follows Hamlet. And there are certain aspects that we couldn't give away in that interview that actually relate to a book I covered very early on this show. I think it was way back in episode four. And that book was called It Will Just Be Us, written by Joe Kaplan. And that did a similar reconfiguration of how a haunting works. And I yelled about that book being great for months. And I do think it would make a fantastic pairing with The Spike House, if you're looking, like I am, for some old-fashioned but innovative haunted house stories. My only real reservation with The Spike House is that I would actually have liked it to be quite a bit longer. Johnny's done an incredible job of packing all that story into a relatively short page length. We we talked about that, that like me, he struggles with brevity and he's done really well to be so concise. But I almost worry that he's gone over the top with brevity. I'd have liked to have known more about the town of Degener and especially about some of the internal logic of how various ghosts work. Like he said, it's hard to make a debut with a big novel. I mean, don't I know it? Why do you think I'm still struggling to wrangle my own mammoth story after two years of writing? But I'd be really eager to see what Johnny can deliver when he gets a bit more rope from the publisher or gives himself some more rope, perhaps. Yeah, I do recommend The Spite House, though. It's a good read, and I think there's going to be great things ahead for Johnny Compton. Anyway... This has been a longer episode, and I know I'm potentially trying your patience with things stretching close to the 90-minute mark each week, so I won't hang about. I'll just say the usual. If you want to get in touch about anything at all, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and occasionally TikTok at TalkScaredPod, or you can email me at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. There's the Patreon if you want more Talking Scared, 
include an extra chat with the authors, as well as some exclusive interviews. That's easy to find. You just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or look in the show notes for the link and you can sign up for a few dollars and get over 35 bonus episodes right away with more every month. Oh, and do me a favour. If you like the show, subscribe and please, please, pretty please, leave a review. Five stars or I'll send the dogs round. Okay, that's me for another week, but I'll be back next Tuesday, as ever, with a brand new interview with Matt Ruff, all about Lovecraft Country and the follow-up, Destroyer of Worlds. I managed to restrain myself from shouting, HP was a hack! <laughs> but we do talk a lot about appropriation, about cosmic terror, and the frankly horrifying or joyous scale of the universe. It's great, and the book is out already. Until then, though, resist bitterness... Leave a cookie out for your ghosts and everyone form a protective ring around Keanu Reeves. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.